Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Hey, Teresa. Hi, Sherry. Happy Monday. Monday. Yes. 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 I'll leave I know, you I know that people who are listening are hearing us maybe on Thursday if they're really like drop day downloaders, but maybe on different days. But for us, recording day. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. I well, like the way you've rechanged your background a little bit. Really um, you know, I got a plant. You got a plant. Look at Look at how beautiful. And of course, you always have anecdotal anatomy. I'm thinking I better hang Poe right over my plant in the background. Yeah. And he can share his shining face as well. So sometimes you got to make room for the big ass calendar. And that meant shifting my computer a little bit, which meant shifting the view, which, you know, as part of what we do, shifting the view is inevitable. And the thing that just keeps coming up for me is acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. We can accept that things change, the view changes, then what do we do and how do we see it? And all of that comes from our practicing, our practices, our, our practice. Yeah, we've discussed our practices in a few different ways, but today I think we're going to dive a little bit deeper into our personal, like how our practice is personal to us and I'm pretty excited because every day my practice evolves. It either evolves just because I have a little bit more consistency to it, or I bring in a new practice, something captures my attention, or one of the yoga eat that I haven't really dived deeply into becomes the next phase of my personal practice and growth. So, hey. There's just so many inroads here, aren't they? And our ability to not only practice, but be aware of the intention of my own personal intentions and what I'm practicing. Mm -hmm. You know, I always say in my yoga classes, or I have said, what we practice gets stronger. So know what you're practicing. And uh, are we practicing compensation? Are we practicing anxiety? Am I practicing calm? So uh, this is going to be a fun little chat. Like that Native American tale. I think it's Native American about the young boy who asks an elder about uh, the elders telling a story about these two wolves who are fighting and or one is fighting and one is really peaceful and lovely. I, I'm, I'm butchering the story, but the little boy is all wrapped in, and listening and he says, well, grandpa or to the elder, which one wins? And he says, the one you feed. So that's, mm -hmm. the, you know, are you feeding your peaceful nature or your more 
aggressive nature and and we all have everything. So it's not a question of, you know, hierarchy. I'm I'm better than you because I'm all peaceful. Well, sometimes I'm a fucking ball of anxiety and and like middle finger action, which although last time or a couple of times ago I learned the middle finger means patience. But like anything, there's the opposite side. You can curl that finger in, touch the thumb of universal energy and create a lovely continuum of patient energy. Or you can flip the bird to the asshole who just came up on you from behind in the car. And that's a different kind of patient, impatient energy. Or you can add a second finger to it and make it a peace sign instead of, yep. instead of flipping the bird. We have so many options for these hand gestures. Every time, the first time I saw that was in the movie Hair, when Treat Williams, who played the main guy, Berger, he is, you know, this peaceful, loving hippie, and he sort of gives the finger. And then he very slowly goes, turns it around and turns it into a peace sign and does this big, broad smile. And that was the first time, I think, that I ever saw that dichotomy with like, fuck you and peace. <laughs> That's so interesting to watch you do that where you're flipping the bird and then turning your hand around. Because for a little while, I was, I don't know why this happened, but instead of flipping my hand so it was palm out for a peace sign, I was doing it backwards, so it was back of the hand out. And someone mentioned to me that that also means F you. Mm -hmm. And it does because I guess it was the Civil War or someplace where you use the finger as either a trigger finger or something with a bow and arrow. I can't remember the specifics, but it was kind of a gesture because when prisoners, I'm, I'm butchering this story because I'm remembering it as I'm saying it, but when when soldiers were captured, mm -hmm. one of the things that happened was they cut off their trigger finger. And so by putting both fingers up backward, it was like, haha, you haven't got me. I still have both <laughs> my fingers. <laughs> I mean, that's great. So I've never I never heard that. I did not know that until the, share, the story was shared with me. And I was like, huh. And then I really have to pay attention to which way I offer my peace sign, whether it's the fuck you peace sign or the peace so you know listeners out there you have a variety of choices when it comes to you know yoga related podcasts we're really glad that you're with us and how many other peaceful loving yogis out there are like so <laughs> so in case you haven't figured Thank out you what today with us <laughs> uh, if you haven't figured out what today's episode is how we relate to our own personal practice the, the perceptive perceptions of our personal practices and I think my first step in there is the willingness to admit that sometimes my personal practice is strong, that it's easily accessible, and that my daily sadhana just comes without effort. But at the same time, there's just as many days where maybe I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I'm really busy today, so I'm just going to put that aside and my personal practice has fallen to the wayside at past times in my life. Not so much lately, uh, but there have been big periods of, of time where my personal attention to myself, to my well-being, has faltered. And sometimes that's for laziness. Sometimes that was because I could use the excuse of being too busy. And sometimes that was because I was willing to give up caring for myself for caring for others and forgetting the whole put your oxygen mask on you first and then others story. I would get so ingrained in 
looking outward to be of service, which is great. But I think it's also important for us to remember that we have to be in service of self first in order to show up well for others. And by not doing so, I found myself in different parts of my life where my practice was suffering, feeling exhausted and depleted and maybe even sometimes angry at the people I was caring for, which is exactly the wrong way to show up when you're in service. But it's also a messenger. It's an opportunity because you recognize that to be able to work with that. So I think we all have natural tendencies to whatever our biases are, whatever our not just even biases, but our natural leanings or, you know, those types of things. And they, they're different at different times in our lives. You know, I've been sort of doing a lot of the introspective work and there's a lot of vanity in the beginning part of my life. A lot of times when, you know, I didn't even think of practice. Practice wasn't even part of my vocabulary until it was. And then when it became part of my vocabulary, it wasn't, I never thought about it in terms of personal practice. I thought about it as going to the studio and I would go, mm. I was almost obsessive with it. I would go all the time. And before that, I never went, I never did anything like that. I worked out at the gym. I miss you, Armando, my trainer in New York, who I love. But that was because I needed to have someone there to make me accountable for doing something good for myself. But I didn't consider that a practice necessarily. And then when I started yoga, it was just, oh, I'm learning all these really cool forms. I'm learning this cool philosophy. I get to be in community. For me, it was almost as much about being in that room with all those other people and my beautiful teachers than, than what it was I was, I didn't feel like I took it home with me. I just kind of left it in the studio. And then my friend Katrina, who told me to go to the first class, gave me her old mat, her old purple mat. Now there was a time in, in our yoga evolution where I don't remember ever seeing a mat that wasn't purple and that wasn't <laughs> from a big bolt of of mats that were just measured and cut, measured and cut, measured and cut. And I still have that mat. I love it. It is, it's like my favorite pair of torn jeans. It's all ripped up and, you know, it's got my DNA all over it. It's got my history. It's like a, a photo album. And then years of that, I sort of realized I was waxing and waning a little bit, a few years in, not so much. So then it was just sort of the thing that I did. And I would go to the studio occasionally and I would still have my classes and I moved all around the city. I started going to different studios, trying on different teachers, you know, sunset rooftop yoga here, you know, trying all these different things on. And, but it all still felt like it belonged in this other place. It didn't belong in my house. I lived in a small apartment in New York City and, you know, I didn't even think about unrolling my mat necessarily, though sometimes I would stretch while watching TV, but that I never thought of as yoga. And then when I started really deep diving and getting more into my meditation and, you know, thinking, oh, I really should be sitting more at home. I really should be adding in a little bit more of my asana with this. I, there are a lot of shooting all over myself. And then I, nothing really ever came of it. And I started imagining like this path that I was on and either I was on the path or I was adjacent to the path. Sometimes I would say, I'm just going to wink at the path. I see it. I see it's over there. It's still a part of my life. I'm just not actively walking on it. I, but it's still, it's walking with me on the side for whatever passive value that practice may mm -hmm. have. And I think that not all practice has to be an active thing. It can be passive if it's acknowledged is, is how I feel about it. And so I'd get on and off and on and off. And it allowed me a certain amount of acceptance for myself and acceptance for others. You know, there was this sometimes raw and sometimes raw. And then I would become a little bit of a purist and then I would stay on for a while. And then I would get off and be like, fuck being a purist. 
And then I was never really a purist in anything until I became vegan. And that's another story. But flash forward, this is, and I've said this before, 24 years. I can't imagine my mornings now without my ritual, ritualized, habituated sadhana. And when I say that, I don't mean mindless. Habituated may feel like, oh, it's now just a habit or ritualize something you do without consciousness. It is, I'm still trying to find the balance between allowing it to unfold organically as it is, but also bringing enough mindfulness and consciousness to it that it remains an active practice, even with some of the passivity. And by that, I mean that now I'm, I think, 82 or 83 days, 80, I'm going to say 82, I'll, I'll err on the, you know, the other side, but 82 days of consistent practice every single day. So I started this particular ritual maybe two months before my regular every day, but it was this, it was the episode we did when I said, abbreviate, don't abandon, that I became accountable for my actions because I said it out loud in a microphone where other people heard me. So I started thinking, I can't be a hypocrite. I can't be someone who says that and then just like doesn't do it. So on days where I felt like really pressed for time or I got up too late or I didn't have the energy, I completely changed the actual thing that I did, reduced it from an hour to maybe 10 minutes, you know, do a little bit of this but be very clear and present for each of those, the minute of asana, the minute of mindfulness, the minute that I'm doing here so that it was still a practice. I didn't abandon it. I still showed up for myself that day on the path. I only took one or two steps rather than ran a mile. And that was enough and that was okay. And I will say what has happened at about day 30, and I may have already said this, I became my own accountability partner. I didn't want to see that little clicker go back to one. <laughs> I didn't being like, oh shit, now I got to start all over again? Really? Even though I know that that's bullshit anyway, because, you know, we're human. And sometimes there may come a time when I'm like, oh shit, I didn't do my practice today. And then I'll have to start from one and I'll have to accept that and use all the practices that I do in order to accept that. But like you said, and I'll, I'll shut up for a little while, but <laughs> for a little while, things do evolve. And what's fascinating is watching a sort of set not rigid, but a set series of things that I'm doing, how that changes within the boundaries that I've created. And it's, it's really extraordinary and it has impacted every aspect of my life. It sounds like you have much of the same things that I was about to talk about, which is there is the commitment, there's the showing up, being accountable to self first is really what I think about my practice is what am I doing to care for myself, for my body, my mind, my spirit, so that I feel like I am embracing practices that lead me to well-being and healing. And I have to say that although I feel like I have had some sort of a sadhana for many years, even if at times it lost its consistency, that it became much more consistent in 2020. And, you know, not to fall back on, okay, now we're going to talk about COVID because that's not the point. The point is, was that I really started to spend a lot more time informally walking, getting outside and going into nature. And I wouldn't have at that time talked about how hiking, sneaking off to the woods, going to find a waterfall was my sadhana or what I would have envisioned as a yoga practice 
because it kind of sits on the edges of looking completely different. There wasn't a mat. There wasn't any shoes. I wasn't even barefoot. I was wearing hiking boots. So, you know, all of my yoga practice was barefoot on a mat. But what I did find out was it kind of went back. I, I found myself thinking about something that I learned in my yoga therapy training. And that was that one of the definitions of yoga was calming the fluctuations of the mind, settling the mind as a definition, which was a huge transition because although there was meditation, there was breath work in the studios in which I practiced, I really didn't look at it so much through the lens that the definition is calming the fluctuations of the mind. And walking really, especially out in nature and the quieter it is and the less people that are around, the simpler it becomes for me to start to calm those fluctuations. And at the same time, I was taking a course in closed mouth breathing and the benefits of closed mouth breathing. And so as I started walking and climbing up hills, I started to realize I defaulted to breathing through my mouth, not my closed mouth breathing breath, which was supposed to energize and keep me strong and fit enough to climb those hills. And that brought this level of breath awareness to my walking. And so what seemed to be an informal practice to me or one that I didn't even label as my yoga practice has become such a part of my morning ritual, my morning routine, which is to get up, to find a place to walk, to be in connection with my breath. And I've add, and I continue to add things such as when I was walking at Five Mile Woods in the middle on New Year's, New Year's Eve, I started chanting while I was walking. So there's different ways that it can show up that look different than rolling out the mat. Not that I'm saying there's anything good or bad about either one. There's just a lot of different inroads and a lot of different opportunities to blend a yoga lifestyle into my everyday activities. Oh, that's beautiful. And no, I don't even use a mat for my asana in the morning. I, I choose not to. But the definition that you said of yoga, since we're talking about yoga eight this season, it's the second sutra in the yoga sutras. Yoga mm. shita vritti niroda. Like that's the second. It's the, um, the restraint of the modifications of the mind stuff is yoga. And that's the reducing the fluctuations. Everything else I think comes after that is to kind of support that this. Every other sutra. This is the book that I typically use, the Satchitananda. If you're at all interested, there are many different, you know, they say that the translations of the Yoga Sutra speaks more about the author than the actual sutras themselves. There's so many different ways in, but this one's pretty classic. But that is, that is the definition of yoga. That is like, that's the, the first sutra is we, now we start yoga. Like that's the first one. And then it goes into what it is. And then everything else kind of filters through that. But one of the, you were talking about the personal piece. And what I find interesting is over the years, people who have who are born into certain wisdom traditions, different religions and wisdom mm. traditions, will sometimes feel a little off-put by yoga because there's no middleman. There's no real, there are lots of deities if you go into Hinduism and you can kind of find, it's, I think I was told, it's not a, a multi-theistic religion. It's a monotheistic, but with many representations of the one God. 
a little bit like the the saints in Catholicism, like they sort of all represent the different pieces of the one God. And all of that is to say that there's space for every tradition to do this. So for example, for my sadhana in the morning, I was, Teresa, you and I were talking about it. I had a lot of people in my life right now who are suffering. I have, I mean, all my people who I love so much, everyone has something, whether it's a physical disease, a psychological, you know, challenge going on, you know, something going on. And I was feeling so overwhelmed and there's only so much that my one person can do to actually be there for my people. And I want to be there for every single one of them. And in Judaism, there's a healing prayer called the Mishaberach. And when we go to services, there's a list of the people in the community who are willing to have their names read out loud. Names are read, and then the rabbi will go around and sort of allow people in the congregation to say the names of the people for whom they're praying out loud. There's something about saying the name. I, at my dad's funeral, they say you die twice, once in your physical body, and then again when people stop saying your name. So I was feeling so overwhelmed by all of this suffering, and I thought, okay, why don't I just add the Mishaberach to my morning practice? So I took out a piece, I have my notebook, a piece of paper, and I started writing down all of the people in my life who I feel could use a little extra boost in healing. And I should probably put myself on that list too, since I'm feeling a little depleted right now. And it could be anything from temporary situations to long-term chronic things to, to lifelong things. I've done it now twice. And each time it reduced me to tears. There was something about connecting to the name, to the energy of the person, to the energy of the ailment, at least as I see it, which may or may not be as the person sees it. And then to be able to do something to put the vibration into the world that is just, you know, generally healing. And because it comes from the tradition into which I was born, I have heard this prayer I, countless times, but I made it personal. It's different when you do your asana in a class. It's different when you're meditating in a group. All of these things are wonderful. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's different. Different doing the mishaberach with your congregants around you and you know your, your person leading you. But when you're alone sitting on your cushion and bringing or on your mat or on the hardwood floor or in nature by the babbling brook, when it's you and your source and the source of all things, it becomes very, very personal. And that is the practice I could not have imagined that I would ever bring in 10, 15 years ago. That was not a part of the vision of the path I was walking. So I fucking surprised the shit out of me that, that all of a sudden I'm in this space where I don't have to remind myself to do it. I don't have to cajole myself or rationalize in or out. I don't have to have any of that that discursive talk in my head, I wake up, I make my bed, I do my practice. And it just feels like an organic extension of waking up. You've mentioned making your bed. And I was never a bed maker. Either. My bed was never made. I, I mean, my mom used to tell us that if we made our bed in the morning, she would vacuum and clean our room. And if we didn't make our bed, we had to do the chores, all of the chores when we got home from school. So she was a really great motivator. But then when she wasn't there to clean up my room for me, which was very kind of her to do that, somehow, you know, I just didn't have time to make my bed. Like, uh, how long does that really take? I could convince myself I don't have time to do that. But when I moved into my last place that I lived, when I lived on the farm, I just decided every morning, as soon as I get up, I'm going to make my bed. And it takes, what, all of 30 seconds for me to pull the sheets up and put my pretty pillows back in the place where they belong. But 
it feels like, well, first of all, it's a practice because it's easy for me to say, oh, I'm just going to go and start my day and not do it. So it's a simple practice, but it's a practice. But I guess the surprising part was that when I would walk in and out of my bedroom to get dressed and do things, I felt different because it wasn't messy and disorganized. It was all neat and tidy. And I have a pretty bedspread with big turquoise flowers on it. I got to see them instead of seeing them all scrunched up. It's a simple little thing, but it had a big impact as being a part of my daily practices. And, you know, I work one-on-one with many clients, either as massage clients or personal yoga therapy clients. And I often hear, I just don't have time for self-care. I don't have time to go to the studio. I don't have time to do yoga. And so I guess you know, from a personal perspective of my practice and how I would offer it to people who feel that they don't have time is to notice the things in your life that do fit into an intentional lifestyle and start from there. And maybe it is. I intentionally make my bed every single day when I get out of it. I mean, we talked about the yamas and the niyamas and a personal practice is cleanliness. So yeah. As simple as I'm about to take my shower, I'm practicing my yoga right now. Or I'm washing my dishes. I'm practicing my yoga right now. I can do this with an intentional attitude of noticing how it fits in. And that's what yoga as a lifestyle looks like for me, is not adding things. Maybe the very first step is to notice I am breathing. And pranayama is a big part of a yoga philosophy and a yoga practice. And to notice the little tiny steps that are in my life that feel like a ritual that I give intention to, not something rote and habitual, but a ritual that I give intention to, and then find the tiniest, maybe it's tiny, bit of joy rather than being like, look at my sink full of dishes, (laughs) which is totally part of the system. And, you know, you bring something up that's really important. And I think that that's the intentional piece because you can be doing your dishes, which is cleanliness, but you could be doing it with resentment, Mm -hmm. doing it angry that, you know, someone else didn't do it or that you had to do it now, or that the dishes weren't rinsed or whatever else. And we were talking earlier about like, what is yoga? What is not yoga? And if yoga is you know, yoking, it's unification, it's stilling the mind stuff, like all the fluctuations of the mind, then anything we do with intention that connects us, reminds us that we are connected, that is yoking, that is helping to reduce the the agitation of the mind and the discursive thought, whether we call it yoga or not. Some people will never call it yoga, but have been practicing yogis all their lives. My mother never practiced yoga. She was a total yogi. So was my dad. You know, he had so much of that. So they would never necessarily, or maybe they would have at some point, but I don't think they would have identified themselves as yogis. But the way that they intentionally lived their lives could easily fit into the system that we're talking about. So when semantics comes in and you know, people are like, oh, well, I, I do that, but I, I don't do yoga. Well, maybe it's just because you're not exactly sure what yoga is. You still think it's a handstand in the middle of the road. And that's, you know, that's part of the path or the learning process. I used to think that's what it was. And and I was like, oh, 
that's just like not even the tip of the iceberg. It's the little tiny crystal on the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip. And it's just so much goodness there to, to explore. Sometimes opportunities show up that I don't expect. An example to practice, that is. Mm-hmm. An example is walking Siva. So I was walking Siva in my neighborhood the other day, and I noticed on one of the balconies that I pass on our walk when we're in the neighborhood rather than going to the park or something, somebody had hung a banner on on their balcony with a breast cancer ribbon on it and the word warrior, which pretty much just says that they know somebody who is working with breast cancer, whether that's the person who lives there or somebody else they're supporting. I I have no idea. I don't know who lives there. But when I saw that, I paused and I was like, and it so it captured my attention. I noticed it and I paused and you had taught me and hopefully I get it actually correct. But I stopped for a breath. And the thoughts in my mind was, I breathe in your pain, I breathe out some ease. And that might not be exactly the way you taught me, but That's it's- the Tonglin practice. Okay. It's, it's taking in the suffering and breathing out the tonic. You know, I mean, with, with whatever words, breathing in the pain, breathing out the, the balm or the salve. I mean, it, whatever, it, whatever it is that will help alleviate that suffering. And so it took me a pause in my walk. and. I can imagine that energy is going to flow and maybe there was a wave of that woman who just felt a moment of ease. I don't, I don't know. There's no way of quantifying where it goes or how it is felt by the people that I send that energy to. But at the same time, it calmed the fluctuations of my own mind. I all of a sudden just felt a little bit more peaceful. Are you okay? I None of the sound was coming through my AirPods. It was all coming through the computer again. again. And I'm like, I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, I think my kids can hear you. I think that it's external. And um, I wonder if it changes the, the sound if I put them back in. I'm going to put them back in. and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I was just like, again, really? Like, I don't know what it sounds like when it's coming in through it. Practice? Am I practicing? Am I practicing here? Oh my God. Oh, that's so funny because we I was an acceptance. <laughs> I was accepting. Oh my God. Oh, that's so, so interesting. <sighs> and for those of you that, I mean, the reason that I started laughing like that was because you might not be able to see this unless you head over to our YouTube channel <laughs> after Judith does her amazing work and puts uh, <laughs> the video along with the audio. But Sherry started making these weird faces while I'm talking and I'm like, can she not hear? I'm trying to interpret them like, did my... Did my microphone stop working? <laughs> because Mercury's in retrograde and we're having all sorts of like, you know, microphone issues. And all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in three places at once. What the hell is going on? I am so sorry. I really didn't want to derail you because you were on a, a good roll there. Uh, you know, last, uh, now we just got a, another additional opportunity that we didn't <laughs> notice, which was laughter yoga. That's <laughs> 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 in the middle of the day and see how many people started laughing and I started laughing with you. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Yes. So, whew. anyway. You beautifully in my ears and I love your voice in my ears. It's so soothing. Talk about, you don't even have to do much. All you have to do is you know, speak and your voice is like a tonic for the soul. You know, it's so, 
I love that you said that. And it's not the first time I heard it. Uh, there have been people who say, oh, I listened to your class or I listened to your meditation and your voice. It just, it's just so calm and soothing. And again, this is another one of those really interesting opportunities to practice, have a practice. Because when we started recording and at other times, and maybe other people have the same, same thoughts, when I started listening to myself speak, I was like, that's what I sound like? Because in our head, in my head, I sound completely different than I do when I listen to our recordings or any time I've had my voice recorded. And the first thing I thought was, oh, that's what I sound like. I don't want to sound like that. But then people say, oh, your voice is so soothing. And I'm thinking, huh, isn't it interesting how easy it was for me to start to pull apart how it wasn't good enough? Well, you're not alone. And I think, and I'm going to blanket every single person on the planet feels that way, <laughs> which may not actually be true. There might be an exception. But in acting, I was in a theater program one summer, and I think it was at the Hampton Playhouse where we were forced to do monologues and then listen to ourselves speak because of that, because they wanted to get us used to hearing our voices recorded and so that we could also hear what other people heard in a way that we hadn't heard it before. And I thought it was so interesting. They did that every summer. And because it is, it is something that everyone has that experience of hating their own voice. But while we're talking about your voice, I have to shout out to my friend, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. I know at some point you're going to listen to this because she said to me that when she hears your voice, she just feels so calm and soothed. And so I just wanted to shout out to her because she's a, a regular listener. And uh, yeah. Thank you, Michelle, for listening and for that amazing feedback. I appreciate you. <laughs> So let's talk about how our practices like evolve. And I think we're already there, but I find that I add practices in on a regular basis. And I, and that is not something that happened so much before I recognized that there was such a thing as a sadhana and a personal practice. I, I very much like you, I did my yoga in the studio on my rolled up mat with a teacher guiding me that was yoga to me. So it didn't really leave the studio. And I want to give a shout out right now for all of those teachers and all the people and all the amazing studio owners that we have, because that's how I learned yoga. We, I learned from a teacher. And without that tutelage, without that being my beginning, my step in point, I don't think I ever would have gotten to a personal practice or noticing my rituals and how I intentionally live my life. So going to the studio and having this amazing variety of teachers are who I credit for helping me to advance through that journey and to bring in different types of practices and to allow them to grow. You know, yoga, we said it, we say it many times, yoga eight. There's an awful lot of room and options to continue to grow an intentional lifestyle and add to what I include and incorporate into, and I'm going to say my sadhana and or an intentional lifestyle. I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, no one is suggesting that, you know, starting this path that you go into a cave or into your mm -hmm. room in your home and just go onto YouTube and, and learn or read from the books, which is really important too. 
but having a live person there with eyes on you to see the things that we can't see. We all have blind spots to hear. Like we just talked about listening to our voices. They don't sound like us, even though we know that the voice is mm -hmm. coming from us. The shape we're in may look very different than the way we think it is because our proprioception also has to learn to grow into who we are and how we feel ourselves in the space we're in. And I think for a long time, like I said, I didn't imagine I would have this personal practice, but I can only have it because of all the teachers. I've also gotten into it with people who have one guru, one guru, one voice. That's not my energy. I think if I, maybe if I met someone who I was really turned on by the the information she was giving, I'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I've got to just keep learning. And there are teachers that I go back to and I return to, but they're not my only teachers because my feeling is, and, and I think that there's an argument to be made for, for all of it. But for me, I need many different voices so that I can discern for myself what works because I have a tendency to give my power away. If there's a teacher up there that I, I tend to fall in love with all my teachers and not in an icky kind of like you've crossed a boundary way, but in the way of like just sort of allowing myself to give my whole self to them and trust that what they're giving is going to, to be what I need. This feeling of just surrender to the teacher. Ishvara Pranidana keeps coming up. Um, but that said, if I only had the one, I would just be all in and believing that one thing in that language, in the way that they do it. And if you've ever taken an amazing workshop and you're a teacher, you just want to turn around and teach it the same way that teacher taught it because it was so amazing. But you're the teacher, so you have to practice the things that teacher taught you so that it could come through your authentic voice. And that's something I have taught many, many trainees how to tap into their authentic voice. And so I don't want to ever be confused for another teacher using their language, using their voice, using their cadence, using their, their sequences even. Because as teachers, we get to, to do all of that on our own. But once you kind of have enough, I'm a buffet girl. Like I want to sample all the things at the buffet. I'm a little taste here, a little taste there. And some things I'm going to really enjoy and go back for more. And some things be like, you know what? I'm glad I tasted it, but I don't really need to go back for that. And so that's kind of how I feel about the teachers that I've had and the experiences and the workshops and the teachings, all of that. But now the organic, you were talking about the evolution of sadhana. And mine began, even though I'd been sort of ruminating and rationalizing it for a while, that I was asked to teach a, a chakra masterclass to dancers at Ryder, Ryder University. And it's, I've done it four times, four or five times maybe. I forget exactly how many. So I may have said six at one point. I may have said three at another point. Several times I've done this, but this time I wanted to do it differently. The first time I did it right out of the book, I'm taking the chakras. What's the essential oil? What's the food? What are the things that sort of support this particular thing? What's the energy? Blah, 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 but all someone else's words. But after decades of practice, I knew enough to be able to filter it through my own experience while still bringing in the, the foundations that were offered to me by teachers who were way further down the path than I was. And so one of the things as I was kind of researching and it showed Manipura being sort of the center for the dancer and you think balance, like, yeah, that makes sense. And then I started thinking, I'm just going to do half sun salutations and I'm going to focus on Manipura. So that became, that was the beginning of my sadhana because I wanted it to be doable, something that I had a purpose. It was for this teaching for, so that I could embody with enough time, really embody the teaching that I was going to be offering. And so I started with these half sun salutations with the focus on Manipura. And then that started bringing in balance and that started bringing in the warrior poses and that started bringing in other things. But then 
I started realizing I don't want to just be doing this. So I was other things that like I'm bouncing up and down and I'm shaking my arms and I'm shaking my legs. And then I'm doing the twist with the hands hitting me on the back where the kidneys are. And then I'm coming into stillness and then I'm tapping myself all over my body. And then I'm releasing, like clearing my energy field by, you know, taking my hands and just like a six to eight inches away from me, clearing it all off. I don't know what the fuck that's doing, but it could be doing something. I believe there's an energy field. So if I practice with consistency, maybe I'll learn something. I'll embody something that before was just a theory or just something someone told me. So I do that pretty much every day. There's certain things I will do every day and add other things in. So I'll, I always do squats. I do malasana every day and I do legs up the wall without the wall because I was thinking in classes, I would always teach how important it was to activate the lymphs and the ankles by inverting or massaging the ankles because there's no pump to get it through the body. I know I've said this a hundred times on this podcast, but so why is it only important in class to do that? Why shouldn't, why isn't it important for me to do that for myself and not just because I'm teaching it to others? So now I'm doing that every day. I'm rolling my wrists. I'm rolling my ankles. I'm, I'm doing that. And then I, I'll either do a tatvamasi or a soham or, a, you know, some kind of mantra. But now the mishabera is kind of allowing me to do that. But I'm doing the tatvamasi on my body now. I'm looking at all the things that I have challenged with in my own perceptions of myself. And I'm standing in front of a mirror and I'm tatvamasiing it. I'm saying, I am that. Like, what is it about that that I can relate to and what can I love about it? Because I just want to fall in love with myself every day. And so that, and not in a narcissistic way, in the way that I can then be fully available to give that love to others. And so that came in, the Mishra Barach is coming in. And I just told Teresa that I've just started now, before I get out of my bed, taking three deep breaths. Now there's a practice called the Perfect 10, which it asks you to breathe and with each breath count and try to get to 10. But every time your mind wanders, you come back to one, that kind of thing. And there's no need to get to 10. It's just a curiosity to how that works out. But three should be doable. Three, I should be able to do three and then hop out of bed, make that bed and do the thing. First time, and I've only done it a couple of times and today I forgot to do it. But getting to three took me like six times to get to three. Then I thought, what is it waking up with all that turbulence in my mind and how important it is to kind of allow my day to start from a stiller place. Is that a word stiller, more still place? So these breaths now have a bigger purpose than just, oh, I'm just gonna breathe and then get out of bed. Well, I'm breathing so that I can approach the next thing from a place that feels more in integrity than just like blah, 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 blah. And so imagine waking up and starting with your baseline of energy all over the place. So that's sort of, everything is finding its, its reason for being there. And so then I, I've said, I said, I put the pillow on my bed and I've always, I open all the shades before any of this and I sit on my pillow and I have my timer. There's a timer, a free timer you can get on a smartphone called Insight Timer. You can put as many interval bells as you like in there and they have all different kinds of bells and they have classes and things you can do. But I have many different settings. So if I don't have time, I have a 10 minute one that there's a bell at three minutes so I can do my, my breathing exercises and then have seven minutes to sit in meditation. I have a 15 minute one where it's five and then 10 minutes of meditation. The one that I typically do is 25 minutes. I have a bell at five minutes so that after I've done my Nadi Shodhana or my, that's alternate nostril breathing or whatever my pranayama is, then I can seamlessly move into my meditation. 
And then I open my eyes to the world and allow myself that. And then I, I come in, the bell goes off, I do my bow. And then sometimes I'll pull a card. I know you want to talk about the cards, but the oracle cards are a part of the process. Sometimes they're tarot, sometimes they're oracle, sometimes they're, you know, just, you know, I'll take the book and not even take the cards and I'll just flip the pages and see what page it comes to, just to kind of mix it up a little. Sometimes I wait for the universe to throw a card at me. What do you want me to see? What's in my blind spot? What is the energy that will best affect the, the best possible outcomes of the day? And sometimes the universe will throw a card at me and be like, oh my God, obviously. And sometimes they don't. And it's almost like, all right, you're, you have to be responsible. So then I fan it out and I, I do the sort of hovering with my hands and then I pick the card. And it's always equally as magical when I do it myself as when the universe says, no, 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 look over here. Look over here. <laughs> That's a smart universe. Right? <laughs> Smarter than I am. But you know what? The yoga is, I am part of the universe. It's not separate from me. And that's why it can be so intense is because we're so illuminating, because we're supporting ourselves. Like I, this, the universe is not separate from me. And that's the piece. That's the molecular connection that feels like there's, there's a threshold that keeps getting pushed that I'll cross it here. And then it's, you know, sometimes they move the line or, you know, Lucy pulls the football or, you know, something The line keeps moving. But every once in a while, I cross that threshold into that, that understanding of connection. But as far as the cards go, you actually gifted me my first set of cards and it was practices from nature. And so, and that was not that long ago. That was in, within the last year that you gifted it to me. So it's a, it's a very new uh, practice. And so I started just picking a practice every day uh, to just give me an intention. What do I want to focus on today? I'd shuffle the deck. It has all different types of practices. And then I would just randomly pick one. There was no real ritual around it besides, ooh, let me pick a card. And then I would focus on that practice for the day, which was an intention. And then when I was at Kripalu for my outdoor leadership training, I had shared this story. You can go back. While I was at my sit spot, the first two or three days, I was leaning up against this tree and having this relationship built by the support of feeling grounded, nestled within her roots. And I decided I wanted her to have a name. So I went in, I found their decks. They had a goddess deck that I really loved. And that's the you one gifted I gifted that one to me. I gifted <laughs> that one to you. Well, they had the open deck in, in, uh, their, in their store. I just shuffled through and that's how I came up with Demeter, the name of my sit spot tree. But the practice began to grow. So in doing so, then I bought myself an Oracle deck, which I love. The artwork is beautiful. Sometimes in a hurry, I just choose a card, which, you know, I'll ask a question. Sometimes I don't have a question. I was like, just give me, a, give me an intention or a thought or something to think about today. And other times it's a bit of a more formal practice where, you know, I will ask you know, I'm struggling with, or I want inspiration for, and see, you know, shuffle the deck and take out a number. There's different types of spreads. I usually do three, and the three have many, many different ways that you can look at it. I can look at it from past, present, and future, like what, how is my past influencing this? What's going on in the present day to help me with it? What's the future going to look like on this pathway? 
or, you know, what to focus on, what I need to be cautious of, what an outcome is. So there's so many different ways of looking at it, but the practice is getting stronger. Now, I don't know a whole lot about Oracle cards. I don't know a whole lot about most of it, but I think that's the practice because now I'm getting to learn something new. And as I find these different ways to take tiny steps in, what I've noticed is interesting things. I've noticed that I often get the same card about something. And the card that I'm getting is about letting go, releasing, and moving on, the practice of non-attachment. And honestly, in the days that I have been pulling cards, I can probably say that 65% of the time I get a card that alludes to me needing to strengthen my practice of not staying attached to things, to be able to move forward and let go. So do I believe that it's predicting my future? Not yet. Maybe my woo will get there. That's not what I'm thinking. But what I am thinking is this is a really great way to have prompts around my intentions for a day. They give me lenses to look at what my question was from different perspectives through the eyes of different practices in something that feels very cohesive and connected. That's really awesome. And you know what? It's so funny because they're not predictive. They're, I, at least I don't think that it's about future telling. You know, get out your crystal ball for that. Yes. Um, I'm going to have to come borrow yours because I don't have one. <laughs> that's okay. You can scry in water. You can look into water. But we did the whole thing on the hero and heroine's journey, and that was all about the archetypes. And these cards are based in archetypes. And so that is why I think on so many levels, regardless of what card one pulls in any given situation, there will be a way to connect to it. There will be a way for the mind to make that connection to the reality of the situation because they're universal and they transcend, you know, the, the petty, they transcend the idiosyncratic things of the moment. They transcend, you know, the, the details of the day. They are really overarching concepts that allow us to, I think they are yoga in the sense that they are about self-study. So if we can make that connection, if you're pulling these cards and they're all sort of implying this, then that's coming from something you know that you need. Someone else might pull mm -hmm. those same cards and have a different way in and say, it's not so much about letting go. Maybe I need to hold on a little bit more. Maybe I need to not be so, you know, just like let everything be water, you know, or whatever it is, whatever our particular leanings or needings are. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about these cards is that they're never wrong because they're always speaking to some human experience that we can all relate to. So as you were speaking about how the cards really are then personally interpreted, and I agree 100%, there's just, especially when I formulate a question and I'm looking for an answer, there's a lot of different ways of solving a question. And so having an intention and a lens to look through is just another way to help me to find the answer. And I wanted to clarify that. It's another way to help me find the answer through that lens, but the lens isn't a brain lens. Sometimes it is, yes, this is the thing I'm thinking about. This is how this fits in. And it's very cerebral, but there are some cards, there's sometimes that it's really much more about the felt sense to pause. I pause after I've pulled my cards and sit with it. Maybe I close my eyes. Maybe I stare. Maybe I get down on the floor and do a full meditation. 
but always at least 10 breaths to pause and just feel how they feel in my body as a way to connect. And it might not surprise our listeners or you that this is a card that shows up for me on a regular basis. And it's Gaia. And the artwork is beautiful. This comes from this deck, just so that you have it, the Gaia deck. But I pull the Gaia card quite often. And the words that are written on the bottom are wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual understanding. And with my love of nature and how much it calls, I've received this card two or three or four times a week when I use this deck, yeah. which is quite interesting that the same card keeps coming out of how many are in here. I don't know. But this is what it says. This card is the most powerful card in the deck. It shows that you have a deep spiritual connection to the earth and a deep spiritual understanding of life. Gaia, the earth mother, thanks you for the love and consideration you show towards her and the love you have for all living things. She encourages you to gently and lovingly share your wisdom and knowledge of the earth with others. Perhaps you may join with like-minded souls to share your message of love and you may choose to do practical things to help the earth restore her balance and well-being. Yet it is not a call to preach to others. You become a beacon of light. Remain that way. Share your knowledge and wisdom only with those that are ready to hear it. And do not fear. The earth changes that are taking place, for all is evolving and unfolding as it should. All earth needs is a little bit more love. And the affirmation, I am in communion with Mother Earth. I hear her call. I am grateful for her love and share her wisdom with others. I am a beacon of light. All evolves and, and unfolds through love. So this is just every time I get her, I don't know. I don't want to put her back in the deck because I think she's so beautiful. Isn't she gorgeous? <laughs> don't hang on. That's the yeah, that's the thing that's they're the, trying to tell right, you. Saying, Let her don't put her back out. in the deck. Shuffle Let her, her in good and you'll pick her next time. You know, and I want to clarify one thing too is that when we use the cards, it's different than like we have a friend, Beth, who is an incredible tarot reader and yes. she also does astrology. And so when she does a reading, it often feels predictive. It often unfolds. <laughs> as she has read it. So I don't want to say like every, all for all people, I do believe that there are people out there who are connected to those energies and are able to um, express them in real words that we can hear. And then we go, oh my God, you're fucking magic because that happened. And I'm not going to poo poo any of that because if everything is energy, then everything is possible. But for our purposes, it just feels more archetype. I feel like we should be winding up a little bit here. I think so. Yeah. I do want to offer one call to action, one, one uh, practice that's not so formal, but it can be. It can be the beginning. It can the, One of the cards that shows up for me, and, and I've been journaling it a lot and taking pictures, is the threshold, which I find so interesting because you do these beautiful threshold practices. And I'm not sure I've used the word threshold so much as I have this year because of that. But I, that's how I sort of approach my morning practice, too, that I'm, I'm crossing. Each time I do something, I'm moving into over another threshold. So, you know, to offer that if you are someone who is interested in creating a ritualized practice, it could be called a sadhana, it could be yoga rooted, it could be rooted in any. If you are a musician, it could be doing your scales. 
If you're a chef, it could be, you know, creating something out of the ingredients you have in your house without having to overly prepare, you know, but doing all of these tasks mindfully. If you are someone who, you know, mows lawns, mow those lawns mindfully. It's winter, so probably not so much now. But so have a few ideas. If you want to, I like the idea of bringing different modalities in. So movement, something mental, something, you know, but you can decide for yourself. Get up. And just first make your bed. If you already make your bed, make it with a little extra oomph, a little extra mindfulness. So like as Teresa said, when she created that relationship with her tree during that daily sit spot, that was an intention she had to do. I mean, she had all of this mindfulness around the experience she was having. Someone else might sit at a tree every single day and never once have that same connection to the support of the tree and where the roots are going. And that may never come up. It may simply be a happy place to be every day without anything else. And that is perfectly fine. So whatever you decide to do with enough intention, just know that that's, that's the key and the things you love. So make your bed, move around a little bit. If that means putting on some, you know, earth, wind and fire and moving your body to the music, don't be afraid to put on music, shake your bones. If that means doing a sun salutation, do a sun salutation. The only thing I'm going to ask you if you're starting is just do one or two things. Don't think I've got to do 15 minutes of this and 10 minutes of this. Do one or two things until it feels done. It might be 30 seconds. It might be three minutes, but move your body. You can just shake it around or whatever. Do a pose or two, a balance, whatever you're feeling called to do. And then find some stillness. Maybe you stand in Tadasana. Maybe you sit on the ground where you are. Maybe you have a sit spot. But sit there maybe for just, you know, until you yawn, until you feel the first distraction of the mind, until you, you can set a timer. It could be 30 seconds, could be three minutes. All of these could be 30 seconds or three minutes. Find that stillness. Sing a song. You know, if you're not someone who likes to sing, get your favorite lyric and repeat it five times. Something that's meaningful, something that doesn't have to be a mantra. Mantras, you know, some of the words get so loaded. It could just be your favorite song. You'd be good to say, Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was fucking dry. You can add your own lyrics, too. You know, whatever it is, but repeat it five times so that you get into the the rhythm of, of the mantra experience. And then just to close, get quiet. Maybe count to three. Maybe count to ten. But breathe. Breathe in. And exhale in and out through your nose. And then when you feel ready, start your day. But started from that place of grounded, mindful, intentional experience, whatever it is. And then be curious how it grows. Decide I'm going to do it every day for a week. Just every day for a week. And it doesn't have to look the same. doesn't have to feel the same. And it could be, you know, doing your dishes with a little dance, but with extra intention. But create some ritual, some morning ritual. I think you'll, I think you'll like it. Little things make huge differences. And be kind. Be kind. You know, part of my sadhana is one cup of coffee in bed before I do that making of said bed. So, you know, sometimes the things that really feed our soul and make us feel like we're ready to to greet the day intentionally may look different for all of us. So, you know, one cup of coffee in bed is a ritual of mine. I smell it. I engage my senses. I can't wait for the first drink. And then... So whatever your rituals are, just begin to notice which ones you already have. And like Sherry said, bring in one or two more, a little bit at a time. 
We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening, for tuning in. And let us know your thoughts. Let us know. We want to hear from you. Send us pictures of things that catch your eye, anything that might have inspired you, that you've done, that you just, if you need a little accountability, it's hard to be your own accountability partner. We're here. Let us know. We will keep you accountable. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.